0: we are going to turn to the 23rd Psalm, Psalm 23. So if you have a Bible with you, we're going to Psalm 23. You may have been confused. You may have been looking forward to Romans 8 is probably, I mean, we're not supposed to play favorites. It's like with children, you're not supposed to play favorites, but it's probably one of the best chapters, if not the best chapter in all of the Bible. So I would understand your desire to get back to Romans chapter 8, we will be there next week on a Sunday morning, but the last couple weeks, I'm really grateful to Brent, who stepped in and preached last, uh, last week. We hope that uh, you and Grace had a good week after the aftermath of having to, uh, to preach. And uh, so last week and then this week, we're taking a little bit of a hiatus, and then we'll be back into Romans next week. But my hope would be, here's my desire, my hope would be that as we read the 23rd Psalm, and as we think on its themes and what is happening here in this This song that is perhaps the most popular of all of the songbook of God, that you would see connections, that it wouldn't feel like a total diversion, that in fact this morning you'd be more grateful for the unity of the Scriptures. You would see that the way that the things that a human heart longs for are fulfilled in Christ, even when Christ has not yet come. And so, Psalm 23 is what I'm going to read for us. It's just six short verses. I would love for you to follow along with me. I hope that you have a Bible. I want to remind you, of course, that the best gift that we could have coming out of a morning like this is not that you would say to yourself, Well, that was great to study the Bible, and I can't wait to do it again next week. But you would say something like, That's really great to study the Bible. I can't wait to do that myself later today or tomorrow or the day after. And so, as you read, be studying with me and be thinking with me as I follow, as I go, that you would follow along and this word would live in us. So, this is the 23rd Psalm. My guess is that it is familiar to you, but may God's Spirit make it fresh and new as we read. Psalm 23, a Psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's take a moment and pray that these are not mere words, but that they pierce us as Scripture ought to. So let's pray together. God, thank you for giving us a songbook. We thank you for the expression of emotion and desire and want and insecurity, and angst, and confidence and praise that come through the Psalms. And I ask this morning that we would be wise to this moment. That our tendency to want to sort of skim through, to go through the motions, to assume what we already know, help us to put those temptations, those things at bay. And I ask that we would be alive and present and ready to receive. Spirit of God, would you move here? More than any words that I could offer, more than any of our thinking or our spirituality, we need you for lasting change, for anything good, the things that we really want. Spirit of God, you need to be active. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, move here, rest here, dwell here, give us eyes to see where we have dim vision. Spirit of God, open our ears a little bit wider. And God, I ask that through all that we have planned, all the time we're spending together, that you would bless. You love us. You love your people. You're a good father, a good shepherd, a good host. So, host us now and give us a feast in your presence as we, as we think and as we learn together. We're asking for this not because we're demanding or you're somehow you owe us, but we're asking you as children, look to a Father. Father, give us good things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's been a couple years. And by that I mean, wow, it's been a year or two. I'm not sure exactly who's going to write the definitive account. In fact, sometimes I'm hopeful that these last few years become a mere footnote in the March of History, but I suspect that it'll probably be a little bit more than that. So I don't know who's going to write the history or what they're going to say definitively, But I have tried to, a little bit, reflect over the last couple of years about what it's been like, what it's felt like, both in my own mind, my own soul, my own heart, as well as in people that I care about and that I'm trying to care for. And I think that one of the most evident words, the biggest theme that I could come up with over the last couple of years that I say over and over again, is that no matter what your state is or where you've been, that people, through the last couple of years, they've been stirred up. And by stirred up, I mean that I have noted a more consistent anxiety. I think that if you searched for results for something like anxiety in our world, that you would see that most people who pay attention to these things long before a pandemic ever hits would say that we are in something like a mental health crisis. Surprising to me the number of people who out of the blue in the last couple of years called churches, tried to find people in churches just asking for someone to talk to, and then when you responded to them or asked them about it, they say, you know, I tried to talk with someone, I tried to find some kind of counselor, some kind of therapist, but I couldn't get in for nine months. People were overbooked to listen to someone's problems. I would say that this stirred-up feeling is probably a manifestation of realizing that we're not as in control as we'd like to be. It breeds a kind of insecurity that was palpable. Everything that we thought we knew, we weren't sure if we knew it anymore. And this led to, I believe, one of the greatest robberies that we have experienced collectively, certainly as a nation, and then the greater thing is as a world, and that is I believe there was more contentment stolen from people in the last two years than at any time that I can recall or remember. Thank God I've not lived through a drastic or a massive world war. I can imagine something like that would be similar and likely worse. But it has been rare, I would say this, it has been rare Over the last 18 to 24 months, for sure, that I have spoken with someone. In fact, we're right at the two-year mark. This is maybe why I'm waxing contemplatively. You know, there's two weeks like this week. Last year, we drove up out of town for spring break, and on the whole way up, we're getting phone calls constantly saying, what are we going to do? This thing's insane. I saw this report. Did you see this report? I think the president's going to talk. You remember this? There were so many calls coming in that eventually Sarah just said to me, Is it going to be like this all week? If so, it's better to be just back home. Let's just leave. So we left and we went back home. So over these last couple of years, and we're right on the the moment of it, it has been so rare to interact with someone who just said, You know, here's the thing. I just feel perfectly content. I'm just great. I'm happy. I don't feel like I'm striving, don't have a lot of questions. Not thinking about where I live or what I do for, a, for my job. I'm just really content. I just love where God has me. I know exactly what I'm doing next week, same as the week after that. What a blessing to be right where I am. Instead, I think that it has been a collective stirring. A collective wondering. Am I where I should be? Do I have what I need? Will I have what I need? Can I find something different? Is there a better place over there? I looked over the fence. The grass does look greener over there. I'm not sure. That kind of sense, that feeling in all of us has been a collective experience more than at any other time. Usually there's what you would sense as sort of winners and losers in the moments of of history. But at least in this case, almost universally, I would say that there have been an increase, an uptick in some level of anxiety. It's why, as we study through Romans 8, these promises of standing in grace, or of having no condemnation, or even in the midst of anxiety and difficult, knowing that there is a Spirit of God inside of us that cries for us and knows that we have a Father. It's why passages like that, I think, are so precious. Sometimes it's the lack or the robbing of contentment that makes us realize what it is that we're offered in the gospel. And as I think through these things, or as I thought through Romans 8 and what is happening, it was amazing to me. You know that the Psalms are quoted all the time in the New Testament, right? The Psalms are always showing up there, as well as Isaiah and a number of other places. The law, for instance. And I was surprised to see that this kind of confidence, this contentment, you don't have to wait all the way to the 8th chapter of Romans to get it. It turns out that all throughout Scripture, those who have found God, those who have experienced a turmoil of soul, a kind of stirring up, that where they have gone to when they felt contentment wrong has been the same for generation after generation. They've tasted and seen that God is good and that one of his best gifts, the most choice gifts that we taste in him, is a contentment of soul. And all of that is to explain how did we get on a random Sunday morning in March from Romans chapter 8 to Psalm 23? And that's the best explanation I can give because when I want to, or when I want to encourage you to say that in the midst of all the stirring up and all the lack of control and all the loss and all the insecurity, that there is a place that we can find contentment. And we've been letting the Apostle Paul bring us there on these paths of contentment, paths of joy, paths of life in the gospel. But now I want to let David lead us a little bit as well. And so, what I would call the 23rd Psalm is a psalm, a declaration. And the fact that it's a song does instruct me, because you can put whatever tune on it you sort of want. This is a kind of confident declaration kind of song. This song is a song of contentment. What would it look like to actually experience what Jesus promises? Rest. An easy yoke, a light burden a sort of presence that's not anxious and stirred up all the time. To be able to offer to people a sense of settledness because not that you're pretending, but because you have felt a settledness in your soul. It seems like David is longing for the same thing and he writes the 23rd Psalm as an attempt to declare what he knows about contentment. So here's what I'm going to do as I go through the 23rd Psalm. I'm going to try to break down what are the keys or what is the main key to David's contentment in the psalm? how can we pray this or read this or say this and mean it and there are going to be two words that are going to come up that i want to talk about and what it looks like for us to mimic david how do we sing this song with him and these two words are going to be conviction and competence conviction and competence and it seems like those two things are going to work hand in hand for david to figure this thing out the first key is a conviction About his standing with God. He is going to declare things that are true about him probably because it's hard to feel it or he's not really sure. That's the thing that's so amazing about a psalm of contentment in the midst of a book that is full of angst and full of insecurity. It's not like David's life was going swimmingly all the time. A few sentences here that that declare to, to us the conviction that he has about his standing with God. One of the first steps toward contentment seems to be to tell yourself, if we were back in the the book of Romans, to set your mind in a particular way, and we should note how clearly he sets a tone of conviction. The thing starts out by saying, the Lord is my shepherd. Is. Is is a word of settledness. Is is a word of declaration. He's not saying, I would that the Lord would be my shepherd. Or in the future, the Lord may be my shepherd, but the Lord is. He goes on to say, I shall not want. Now, this is a psalm, so you don't necessarily think like this very often. Maybe you don't speak like this unless you're Gandalf or something. But you shall not, right, is a a phrase of conviction, Nobody says shall not on their tippy toes falling to the sides. Shall not is a heel kind of statement. And he's declaring things to get to the point of contentment. He is stirring up and trying to get at the place about what he's convicted about. What does he know to be true about where he is with God and what he has in him? And so he writes them out. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not Want, Then every statement of what God is doing for him is a statement of fact. He makes me. These are present terms. Leads, he restores, he leads. I will fear no evil, he says. I will fear no evil. This is a statement of conviction, of settledness. You can hear in his song... The idea that contentment will not be found by second-guessing or wondering, but by declaring what he believes will be his experience of his standing with God. He has gone ahead of himself, thinking about the moments of potential uncertainty, thinking about what it would be like to have no shepherd, thinking about what it's like to want, to desire, to need, to have lack, thinking about what it's like to fear, And then he says, no, I'm convicted otherwise, is, I shall not, I will fear no evil. You are with me. And then he follows it up with this word in verse 6. Surely, surely, a statement of conviction. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. One of the first steps toward contentment is to to declare with conviction the things that God has spoken about you and about our circumstances and about our place, and to declare them not as potentialities in the future, but as something that is a present reality that we have. And I know this sounds sort of weird, mind, new-agey kind of things to some of us. But it's an example that the Scripture set way before some yoga teacher wrote an article about it. Scripture is constant, and one of the paths to contentment, to find the key, to open and unlock this idea, is to never lose the things that are most true about us. So we look at the beginning of Romans 8, There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So when you feel condemned or when you are wondering if your guilt could ever be undone or ever forgiven, you declare what is true. What are you convicted about? There is no condemnation. I am in Christ. And this is the example that David is setting for us. A conviction about his standing with God. And it is the Spirit of God that allows us To move from maybes and mights to is and shall not and will fear no evil. When do you feel most content? When does your circumstance line up with your feeling? How will you know? My guess, it is when you are in a a moment where the things that are the most true about you, the things that you desire the most, the things that you long for, you feel the closest connection between your deepest convictions, the things that you feel matter the most, and when those are showing up in your circumstances. And what David is trying to say is, is that there is a place, the things that matter most to him have been tucked away and they are settled in a way that his circumstances can't barge in. He has a conviction that goes beyond what he presently feels or where he is or even what he's walking through or the potential threats that he has. Because the Lord is his, he has a contentment that has been castled away from all threats. And he's accessing it by these statements of conviction. So, one of the problems of the last couple of years is we don't really know things for sure. You have one sneeze. What is that? Is this evidence of something? Or is it just pollen, which is everywhere? Is it just pollen? Was it something I ate? Should I wear a mask or not? Is this a mask situation? Are they making me or are they not? Should we make them or should we not? Should I go to school or should I not? Should I travel or should I not? And when all of these things are unsure, it is not a small thing to have things that we can be sure of. And I think that David is... Setting an example because he had a long list of the same sort of things. Am I going to die or am I not? Is this lion going to win or am I? Is Saul going to pursue me to my death or not? Am I going to have enough water or not? Do I need to keep running or not? Am I truly forgiven or not? And he finds his way to contentment by declaring with conviction the things that he knows for sure. So first step toward contentment for David seems to be, I'm going to speak in ways and remind myself of the things that are most sure. Second, he's going to land his confidence. This conviction is going to be not in himself. One of the surest ways to find a lack of contentment in your life is to try to control things. So the second word that we came up with was competence. And you might say to yourself, oh yeah, I know. I agree. I just practice again and again and again, and I just take control. And if I'm just more competent, then I feel content. I feel content because I'm running things, and I can run the show. And let me tell you that that will last for a little while, and then it will spiral down into a world of anxiety and insecurity that will be a monster in your life. So don't miss the end of this. This isn't a self-help speech to say, say what is sure, say what is sure because God is sure, and then be competent. No, what David does is he trusts in the competence of God. That's where contentment is found, the competence of God, not your competence. Now, this is not an invitation to incompetence. (laughs) Teenagers everywhere rejoice. (laughs) Like pastor said, I don't have to practice. That's what he said. However, competence The competence of God is the key to David's contentment. Scripture uses a myriad of metaphors to describe what God is is and what he does and what he's like and his nature in ways, and two of the most powerful ones are found here in one psalm. I think the reason the Bible uses a myriad of metaphors, this is a side note, I think the reason it uses a myriad of metaphors is because none of them could fully capture all that God is all that he can do, all that he thinks, all that he feels, all of his ways. And so we probably shouldn't put all of our eggs in one basket, and for that reason, I'm happy. You know, Romans 8 uses a different one, much more familial in nature. But Scripture doesn't want to set and say that if you can only or you should only see God in one way, there's a myriad of metaphors. And the 23rd Psalm employs a couple of the most powerful. The first the most obvious, the beginning of the Lord is my shepherd. And David knows a thing or two about shepherding because he was one. He lived a ton of his early life and in his years preparing or waiting to be king as a shepherd. More than that, that even if he wasn't a shepherd, if that wasn't his job, he would have lived in a culture that had much more understanding of sheep and the job of a shepherd. Agrarian lifestyle gives much more opportunity for experience in this way, and I would say that I am going to talk about the competence of a shepherd almost entirely from reading. Any of you ever been a shepherd? I have exactly one experience with a sheep. (laughs) One experience. Driving through Albania on a mission trip kind of thing, the guy that was leading our trip said, we need to pick up lunch, and we picked up a live sheep. And it rode with us all the way up to the Roman aqueducts or whatever we were going to explore. And then the sheep was delicious, is how that whole thing worked. Now, there's a lot more to that story, and I've told it before. But the point is, when I'm going to talk about being a shepherd, I think to myself, well, I want to listen to David because he knows way more than me. My only experience is about 45 minutes. Part of the story was there's an eight-year-old girl with us that named the sheep, and she was so excited. Anyway, it was just... (laughs) Forty-five minutes the sheep had a name. That's all I got. I don't know. But David would have lived for years and years and years knowing. And so when he says, I need to find contentment, he's going to declare some things. And one of the first things that he remembers is the competence of God as a shepherd. Derek Kidners often writes some of my favorite commentaries on the Bible. He says, in the word shepherd, David uses the most comprehensive and intimate metaphor yet encountered in the Psalms. I love that phrasing. It's a comprehensive shepherd seems to... I said there's a myriad of metaphors, but shepherd seems to be employed often in Scripture because it's pretty broad for how God deals with us. And Kidner says it's comprehensive but also intimate because a shepherd is present with his sheep. He goes on to say that the Psalms often prefer to use the more distant king or deliverer or sometimes even impersonal metaphors like rock or shield whereas the moment you bring up the competence of a shepherd it is a shepherd who lives with his flock and is everything to it. Those in a flock, the sheep cannot imagine life without a shepherd. They are guided They are cared for, they are provided for, they are protected because of this shepherd. And so, this metaphor that David employs is not only comprehensive, not only is it intimate, but it is experiential in the sense that he knows what this is like to have a competent shepherd. And his contentment is going to come through remembering and thinking about what God does in this role. It's also a wonderfully humbling metaphor. I think that you could imagine, you know, sometimes if king is your dominant God metaphor, you might think of yourself as prime minister. You know what I mean? We're just sneaky like that. My own heart, I don't know about you, it's just dastardly. It'll sneak pride in the side door any chance it can get. So you know, like, yes, God is king, but then you imagine like scenes in The Crown, like, but I'm Churchill. And I'm like, (laughs) the prime Minister's really a cross- I mean, sure. I love the shepherd metaphor because the best you can muster is quality sheep. (laughs) Well-mannered sheep. Like one of the best, the least, how about this, least high-maintenance sheep. That's the best my pride can muster when I go shepherd. And here is what God does as a competent shepherd for sheep. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Now, one thing about this that I had to read about and consider because I just don't think about it, green pastures is not just a pleasant place to hang out. It's not like the shepherd said to the sheep, oh, you got to come over here and see this vineyard. You know, like we, one time I got to sit with Sarah on the side of this hill with all these grape, what are they, vines, grape vines and trellises up everywhere. And it was really amazing. It was a beautiful valley. There's green everywhere. And I got to admit, I read Psalm 23 and that's what I think of because I'm not thinking like a sheep. Imagine a sheep comes around the corner and he's parched and he's he he shall not want what he probably wants is food. He wants to be fed, he wants to be fat and happy, and the shepherd's leading him, and they're just walking on this path through the rocky thing, and he comes over and he imagines and sees an endless green pasture. What does the sheep think? I'm gonna eat for days. Over and over and over, I'm gonna eat. So it's not just that they're lying down in green pastures. The green pastures indicates that the shepherd knows how to feed and care and provide for these sheep. Same thing. This is more obvious. He leads me beside still waters. Waters that are accessible. Waters that bring refreshment. Waters that provide what a sheep needs. He restores my soul, he says. It's an idea of Healing or health. He knows how to bind up wounds. You see, a shepherd all alone out there had to be kind of a a jack of all trades. A shepherd needs to know how to assess a sheep that is sick, know what to do when bites from predators come, know how to bind up or bandage cuts and bruises and broken bones. And David says, I can imagine that this competent shepherd knows exactly what to do. He knows where to bring the the best and the healthiest of sheep, and he puts them in a position for that. But he also knows what to do when things are broken and there's problems and something needs to be restored. This shepherd does it all. More than that, the shepherd is looking on ahead. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. To be led well is one of the greatest gifts that any human being can experience. You see, a lot of times, and I know this, that leadership can be very terrible. You know that? Have you experienced bad leadership? Have you been a bad leader and you felt it? It can be a terrible thing, and so sometimes we punt on leadership. We say, I just want out. Hierarchy is terrible. Everything needs to be just completely leveled. But the reality is is that to be led well David is thinking about being led well. He leads me in paths of righteousness. To be led well is one of the greatest gifts you can experience. Many people who think that they hate leadership, in fact, hate bad leadership. But almost anyone that I've ever met loves good leadership. Loves it. Because they don't feel put out. They don't feel like they're being taken from. They feel like they're being undergirded and strengthened. I went on a trip a a couple of weeks ago. We're looking into trying to have a more robust pastoral residency program to try to take back a little bit. We love the academy. We want seminaries to do what seminaries can do. Uh, But we also believe that churches should be more responsible for the training of pastors. So we're trying to figure out, and we went to a training for an organization that's doing residencies and applying for a grant. And I was going to travel with me and Josh Hughes and Paul Gilbert and John Stewart and then Paul wasn't able to make it at last minute because of family health stuff going on. And so there was a number of times in the trip. See, I've traveled with, with Paul Gilbert. who's the lead pastor at Forex cullarn my boss. And I've traveled with him a few different times. And there's one thing about Paul that you should know if you don't know him. He is, he is, uh, I'm going to say this in a respect. He's anal. I don't know if I have else to say that. You know a person like that they, 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 just, they want to think about every detail, it'll just be in order. He, he lives his life, he lives his life like a few days in advance kind of thing. Like that's just how he thinks about everything and, and details. And there was a number of times in the trip where Josh and John and I said, oh wait, what, what are we going to do tomorrow at this time? Are we going to grab food? Are we, do we have to be at the hotel? Do we have to be there? And then we just sort of smiled at one another and looked around because we realized that we just thought Paul would do all of this but he wasn't there. And the reason we thought that he would do all of this is because he always does all of this. Now, I think if you asked him, and he's very humble, he would say it's not just because he's super competent in it, but he likes to make the decisions too. And that's some of your secret. Some of you who are good at this stuff, you just like to control it too. And I know that, that reality as well. But here's the whole point. In the smallest of ways, I thought to myself, I feel a lack. I don't have the kind of leading that I, know. how am I supposed to find the best barbecue if Paul hasn't scoped it out a month in advance and given us seven reviews? How are we supposed to know where we're going? And David imagines this shepherd, did you know that even as the sheep are in the midst of a days-long green pasture? Even as the moment that they're resting and and being restored and bound up and drinking from the stream, that the shepherd is thinking, I know where we're going next. The shepherd is thinking, I see where the threats might come from next. One of the burdens of leadership is having to take initiative and think ahead and press forward when others would maybe want to relax. And David says, he leads me. He leads me. What a phrase. He leads me. He goes on to, destri- to describe walking through the valley of the shadow of death. And he doesn't have to fear anything, this conviction we mentioned earlier, because the shepherd goes with. The competence of God is in not only the fact that he can do a lot of stuff, but he's there, he's present. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now, this is likely the same instrument. One of those crooked, you know, shepherd's crook. That's what it's called. It's a crook. It's likely the same instrument. This crook could be used to correct, to pull back, to whack a sheep that needed to be reminded of something, but then also would provide some kind of protection. Against foes. Sometimes I imagine a good shepherd just training with his his staff, just like a, you know what I mean? There's a guy in, uh, I think it's one of the latest Marvel movies, but it seems like his whole whole shtick is that he has a stick. He has like a, oh, it's the people in uh, Boba Fett. Remember them? And he's got to go get like a special thing. I imagine shepherds going on a long journey to get their crook, and then they have to go to a master, and and then they like show them how to do it. Step, 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 hook. You know what I mean? Or whatever it is. Just imagine a master shepherd who can do all kinds of things with this rod and his staff. And they comfort the sheep. To know, not only do I have a present shepherd, but he has his his weapon and his leadership and his correction here with me. And it's this competence... That comforts David. The only place that we're going to find contentment in a world that ultimately does not know how to govern itself is in the fact that God is in control. If you are ultimately content in the competence of your company, you will be disappointed. If you are ultimately trying to find contentment in the competence of your own skills, you will be disappointed. If you're trying to find contentment in the competence of your family, you will be disappointed. If you are trying to find contentment and security in the competence of the World Health Organization, you may be disappointed. If you are trying to find contentment, you see how I could just go on and on and on? I know it's a little preachy there, but like it could go on, right? Like the list could just, you could just build it forever. So don't overlook this. Don't skim past it. How is David so confident? Where is he finding contentment? Oh, he thinks about and glories in the competence of God. What is God like and what can he do? So that's just one dominating metaphor. Then he moves on in verse 5, and he goes from shepherd to the idea of a host, a host of a great feast. You, he says, and he's changed here, showing again that the metaphors are not only comprehensive, not some far-off thing, but intimate. You, he says, prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. You ever been at a really great meal where everything's taken care of? You don't have to be the one. Got invited to a a supper club lots of years ago, and, um, well, I'll just out him, but Greg, who organized this thing, He's just wonderfully competent in preparing a feast. And I think back to some of the most content moments of eating for me, and I think, oh, is that one time where it was just one amazing thing after the next that just came in front of me? Like, oh, I thought of that. Oh, I thought of that. You need dessert? I thought of that. You might have a lactose intolerance? I thought of that. Or, you know what I mean? Just someone who just brings everything in. It's one of the reasons people love to eat out you get out and someone just takes care of it for you. And now David is imagining the competence of God as someone who hosts and prepares a table and sets him down in the presence of his enemies. He can bring peace and feasting even in the midst of those who are pursuing him. This is an invitation to companionship, to a connection, to a kind of familial delight. And he realizes that here at this table, he is a favored guest. His head is anointed with oil. His cup is overflowing. I went to—you know—you're at a really good restaurant when the people are almost annoying in the way they serve you. I remember a few months back going to the dinner at a place, and we had the, like the water cup in front of me. It was almost like the person spilled on me. They were trying to refill it so fast. You ever been in that spot? I'm like taking a drink of water and the guy's right there with the pitcher. Just like You're like racing him. I did have a half a thought for a moment to just take a really long drink and then kind of troll the guy for a minute. Just like drink and then just like this back and forth. Because he's, he's just so on top of it. And this is what David is imagining. The competence of a host who prepares everything before him, who makes him an honored guest, who is so attentive to his needs that his cup is overflowing with the things that he needs. And all of this reflection on the competence of God leads him back again to conviction. And he says, here's the wonderful thing, the amazing thing. This care and attention, this leadership and provision... Is going to follow me all the days of my life. And then, more than that, he doubles down when he realizes that his contentment is not going to end in this mortal life. He's going to go on and say, I'm going to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We went to a, a dinner one time with a family who we learned a lot from. It was the most unhurried dinner in the world. My family growing up was constant fast food. And even in the name, how can you enjoy that? Here's what you're going to do. You're going to shovel it in real quick. You're going to tell them your order. Get through the drive-thru as fast as you can. They're timing it. And they're going to give you something in the most easy to eat. You know what I mean? Like that kind of mindset. We celebrated a graduation one time with the family, and it seemed like nothing would hurry them. They just kept telling the people who were coming to order, no, 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 just maybe another appetizer. That's fine, but we're just going to be here. Like a three-hour kind of kind of dinner. And I remember enjoying it and thinking to myself, wow, this may never end. And David legitimately says, here's the reality, here's the truth. This competence of this host will never end. I've found home. I parked next to the snowplow, right? He's he's like, I'm here. This is a sign from God. I'm going to be here forever. This is, it seems to me, the key to David's Contentment. He unlocks and doubles down on the conviction about what he knows to be most true. He doesn't let the waves and the winds, all these things that change constantly, move him. Oh man, that would be a whole other speech, but we need coffee for that. Maybe one of the things we learn about conviction is that the news this afternoon might not be as important as they want you to think it is. So, he doubles down on conviction about things that are most true And then he finds contentment in the competence not of himself or his friends or his parents or his company, but in God. And the reason that he can ultimately find contentment in God is because ultimately final contentment is a person. It is God. Augustine once famously said that our souls are restless until they find rest in you. One of the most amazing things about the Scripture is the way that what is longed for. The Bible is, is constantly coming at this greatest need of what we we're designed for in different directions. And what we need, our greatest need, is to be reunited to, be, to God and to be found in Him forever. And it's amazing to me how consistently Scripture comes back to these themes and then lands them all of the promises of God being yes and amen in Jesus. Ultimately, contentment is not a system. It's not a three keys to contentment. It is a person. And so Jesus, the very Son of God, comes to the world to be present with us. And it is Jesus who in John 10, 11, declares that he is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. It is Jesus who comes and says, I am the bread of life. And if you would take from me, you'd never be hungry again. You'd never thirst again. It is Jesus who said, I am living waters. It is Jesus who said, I will give you an easy yoke, a light burden. Come to me. I'll give you rest. I'll make you lie down. It is Jesus who walked through the valley of the shadow of death, straight through death itself. And he is the only one who can bring us safely through. He carved a path for us and then promises to be with us, present with us as we walk through death itself. Jesus is the one who sets a table for us, who goes ahead of us to his Father's house to prepare a place. It is Jesus who reminds us and tells us again and again that we have an invitation to a feast the thing that David is longing for, the thing that he's pointing for, it finds all of its fulfillment in the person of Jesus. Jesus who is a Prince of Peace. Jesus who walks with us and indwells us and is present here now wherever two or three are gathered. And in this way, in this way, the discontent of the world can be a gift. So I lamented, and I'm with you, when I say it's been a couple of years, it's not been pleasant. And maybe I'm just projecting when I say that there's been insecurity or stirring up. The reality is, a couple of stirring years are not only to be lamented, but perhaps they are themselves a gift to us to show us the places and reveal the moments when we have been trying to find contentment somewhere that will eventually be burned away, in places of disappointment, in places of chaos and lack. And so, like David would say, that even his running from Saul could turn to be a gift, that God was there with him and showed him who he was, maybe it would be for us That we would walk through two of the most odd, crazy, insane years ever. And what would happen is not that we would be more unsettled, but more settled in the conviction that contentment is a person. And that what we have to offer the world and what's been given to us in Christ can never, ever, ever be taken from us. That you and I and the church are more secure than, we're going to see in In Romans 8, the creation itself is longing to be renewed. We are more secure than the earth, than the ground we walk on, more secure than any virus, more secure than any country, any political party, more secure than any anxiety. So, let's pray and remember what is most true about us. Let's glory in the competence of God, and let's run to Christ. Let's pray.